Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast in the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 25th of November 2019 and this is episode 138. On this week's podcast, I talked to independent researcher Pratap Chetri about his research into companies of the Indian Labour Corps that served on the Western Front during the Great War. I spoke to Pratap from his home in Mizoram State in northeast India. Pratap, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Thorpe, for having me on your program. I am a civil servant and have been working for the provincial government of Mizoram in the Union of India for the last nine years, specializing in media matters and public communication. Ethically, it would be very interesting to you because I am a Gurkha and my forefathers were foot soldiers of the British expeditions that colonized the northeastern part of India, which was known as Hills of Assam. And uh, I think a lot of the audience might not be familiar with this area. So this is This is the area which is in the extreme northeastern corner of India. It is an area which is sandwiched by Bangladesh, Myanmar, and even China up north. So in 2014, when the centennial celebrations of the First World War kicked off, two Indian magazines brought out these lovely commemorative issues highlighting India's role and contribution in the Great War. I went through them and then I was trying to find out if there was some kind of connection of the war in my part of the country and even my family. Before this, I was aware of the contribution of my fellow Gurkhas in both the wars. Now, this subject has been covered and written upon extensively, I believe. I think you know a lot about that because there have been volumes of written, uh, volumes about Gurkhas' failure and bravery written about. Now, there's a memorial that we have in my hometown, Aizol. There's a war memorial where the names of 71 men of the Labour Corps are written. And while going through those issues, it rang a bell. And also, I have a family connection because my maternal grandfather also participated in the First World War. Of course, he went as a rifleman from a, from a, from a, a police battalion. I mean, it, it was the Lushai Hills Military Police Battalion then, but later it was renamed as the Assam Rifles. And you had about four different units of these military police, which were attached to different Gurkha battalions in various theaters of the war. Now, there was a, also a great yearning in my mind to, for, to find more about the role of Gurkhas in general, and also the Labour Corps from my province. Now, all these were more than enough to light a spark in me, and since then I've been hooked on to military history. I will be very surprised to know that I, never, I have never studied history. In fact, I have a postgraduate degree in physics, and right now media and public communication earn me my bread and butter. So that's how I embarked on my journey, and the association has remained getting stronger year after year. Right. Before we start to talk about the Indian Labour Corps in detail, could you give us some background on the contribution (laughs) that people from the Indian subcontinent made to the British Imperial War effort during the Great War? Oh, yes. This is something I must absolutely talk about. Now, when the war broke out in 1914, we all know that India was still very much a colonial position of the British Empire, and the Indians were just embarking on the freedom struggle. Now, here we must also understand that India that is referred to in the context of the Great War is essentially the Indian subcontinent. And today it comprises of India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and even Myanmar. And some historians even add the independent kingdom of Nepal because that's where you had the Gurkha soldiers coming from. It's very interesting to note that at the outbreak of the war in 1914, the total fighting strength, that is the combatants of the Indian army, was a mere 
155,423 soldiers. Now, the army wasn't trained to fight a war of such epic proportions. And to add to this, they were equipped with obsolete weapons as a part of British policy. Yet, over the four years during the course of the war, India contributed immensely to the war effort, both in terms of men and material. Now, the exact numbers vary. Those most estimates say 1.4 million Indians, that is about 950,000 soldiers and 450,000 non-combatants participated in the war. Some figures also show almost 1.7 million, including 600,000 non-combatants signing up for the war between 1914 and 1918. Now, this is again amazing because India then had a population of just about 225 million, thus making it the largest voluntary army in the history of any conflict anywhere in the world, a feat that would be replicated in the Second World War with bigger numbers. Indian soldiers, I mean, there's been lots written about them. Recently, it has come out in the last, during the last four years, Centennial Celebration, a lot of uh, new theatres. I mean, a lot of unknown stories, hidden stories have come out. Now, Indian soldiers served with credit and honor in numerous battlefields around the globe, whether it was France and Belgium, in Aden, Arabia, East Africa, Gallipoli, Egypt, Mesopotamia, Palestine, Persia, Salonika, Russia, and even China. They earned over 9,200 9, decorations for gallantry, including 11 Victoria Crosses, suffering over 74,000 casualties, and I think over twice that number were wounded and maimed. In 1917, India made an outright gift of 100 million pounds towards the cost of the war. In addition, over four years, India contributed equipment and stores worth over 80 million pounds to the war effort. Now, if you were to calculate those in today's terms, I mean, it would be absolutely, absolutely huge. So then we have, we do have, a, I mean, it's it's just recently that the Indian contribution is to be, is being talked about, but these are just some of the numbers that I was just running you through, you know. So, I mean, th those figures are really amazing. Um, uh, why do you think that um, the story of the Indian soldiers not being taught or understood so much in Britain? And what's the situation of um, the Indian soldier in the First World War in, in the perspective of India itself today? Yes, uh, there are a couple of reasons. Now, a lot of, a lot of academics uh, say that the Eurocentric narrative of the war is the main reason, but there are other reasons. Yes, the first and foremost is the Eurocentric narrative of the war. Now, most of the Western academics and scholars till recently examined and wrote about the war from a Eurocentric point of view, because it was actually the white man's war, Europe's war. And, and it's interesting, someone had... I read somewhere that there have been more books on war poetry than on colonial contributions. So it's only since the four-year centennial celebrations that contributions from white, by non-whites, men of color, are being unearthed and recognized. Now, secondly, a very important point again is, when the First World War took place, the Indians were starting to resent British rule and the freedom struggle was slowly taking shape. Now, one of the main reasons Indian nationalist leaders, including Gandhi and Jinnah, supported the war efforts was the hope that for India's contributions, India might be granted a dominion status and home rule, something like Australia and Canada had in those days. Now, when, did, when this did not happen, Indians perhaps felt let down. And that was a watershed point in India's reluctance to talk about our contributions. Now, another thing is national narratives of India's freedom struggle did not fit with the war which was fought for Britain's defense, rather imperial defense, and hence to a large extent India's colossal contribution was airbrushed. Now a third is the paucity of information on the Indian troops and their experiences. Most of the Indian soldiers were not literate, 
and very few such accounts and memoirs exist. Now, the difficulty with writing on the subject is, as I said, the paucity of information. And since most of the Indian soldiers were illiterate, and hence they did not leave a multitude of accounts like the Europeans did, because uh, whether it was the British, the, the French, you, uh, the Germans, you have a lot of uh, memoirs, a lot of accounts, diaries to work upon. Now, the Indians did not have this kind of information. And if the, even if the information was there, it was, I mean, till now, it's, it's, it's just coming out. I mean, I, I'll just tell you an interesting story. Now, in my, when I was just researching the role of the Indian, uh, the, the labor corps from my region, I came about these very little known memoirs of the men. And one, one of the memoirs of the men, there was just one single copy of it remaining. And I had to take, take a photocopy of that, you know, so even these are slowly disappearing. So uh, published memoirs are very rare and the few letters that exist in archives are very difficult to access for Indian researchers. Letters held by families have to be literally searched like a needle in, in a haystack. The oral history of the events that men passed on to the progeny as stories have never been recorded. And uh, because in the West, you have these uh, very rich recordings of people who saw the war firsthand. Now, these kind of experiences just exist as word of mouth stories. So these oral stories are slowly fading into, into oblivion as the first and second generations, they're near the grave. Archives and fieldwork by way of recording the oral narratives is the only way ahead to bring out more on the broad subject of the Indian role and experience. Now, this is just uh, with the labor corps, even with Indian soldiers, with the combatants, this is the same thing because there's not a lot of written accounts that researchers might work upon or, or, people, of, or, or people having a general interest might just want to read their stories. Now, your research has examined on the role of the Indian Labour Corps. Can you start by telling us about that unit, how big it was and when it was formed? Well, before I speak about the Indian Labour Corps, I think I must first shed light on the circumstances under which calls for labour were made. Also, at the outset, I would, I would also like to point that, that uh, my research has focused more on, the, on men of the Labour Corps from a particular region of India, where I come from, which is a northeastern region of India, which, as I said earlier, is the region bounded by Bangladesh, Myanmar, and even China up north. This region in those days was known as the province of Assam, and you had a lot of hill districts who had, you had these uh, tribals, as we call them, small, uh, small pockets of hills where you had people speaking different languages, small communities just of, of just about 10,000, 15,000, and things like that. But this region today comprises of eight states, or province, uh, provinces or eight states. Now, uh, now coming to, the, to why the Labour Corps was formed. Now, by late 1915, the British War Committee, that is, I think, the War Cabinet, realized the shortage of, of labour might cost them dearly in the Western Front in France. I think this was after the Battle of Somme because there were such devastating losses. So as the war progressed, British combatants could not, could not be spared for non-combat roles. So unskilled labor was needed for, for a lot of work, like building roads and laying railway tracks, handling ammunition, building docks, supply and storm depots, and even trench building and grave digging. Now, you could not spare men from either Britain or France. Of course, I think you did have some kind of a labor corps from these countries as well. But the, I, I think the, the, the amount of people who was needed as soldiers was so great that the demand for labor could not be met from the home turf, if I may use that word. 
So it had to be imported from the British colonies abroad and even from China. So then whether it was South Africa, India, the Caribbean, or even faraway Fiji, men were recruited for labor in the Western Front and for the Mesopotamia campaign. Such was the need for men that even prisoners and convicts were even recruited from the jails in Bombay and other towns for the Mesopotamia campaign. I mean, it, it's very interesting because this is something which a lot of people would know, will not know, that you had prisoners and convicts even being recruited as a part of the labor. Now, in January 1917, so the Secretary of State for India wrote to the Viceroy if India could supply labor for the Western Front in France. While the big provinces such as Punjab, United Provinces, Madras, Bombay and others were already drafting and had sent soldiers in great numbers. Now, these, these provinces were the ones where the bulk of India's fighting force came from, or the, so the so-called martial races, because Punjab, you had the Punjabis, then uh, from the United Provinces, and maybe in Bombay, you had the Marathas, and uh, from the, uh, of course, these, the, uh, there was another thing called the, uh, the, the Imperial Corps, which was the soldiers of the small kingdoms, the kingdoms spread across India. Of course, that is another story. Uh, so the onus of providing labor fell on the provinces which were not represented much in the army. That was Assam, Bihar, Orissa, and the Northwestern Frontier Province, which were not very much represented in the Indian army. So by April 1917, more than 50,000 Indian laborers were recruited for the Western Front in France, while another 290,000 Indian laborers were recruited and deployed in the massive Mesopotamia campaign through the follower system and also through the labor corps. Now, in the Mesopotamia campaign, it is very interesting because you have about 16,000 convicts also serving in the Mesopotamia campaign. So this is really, you know, you, you even, as I said, I mean, where else can you hear about convicts and prisoners doing their bit for the Great War? So these are huge numbers obviously joining up. Were they um, impressed labourers or did they voluntarily join up to, to serve in the Labour Corps? When we talk about the Indian Labour Corps, we have about 19 companies from, uh, from mainland India, maybe 19, maybe 25. And a lot of the other companies were from these very impoverished regions of the, uh, of the northeastern part of India, I was just telling you something like in those days, it was called the Rishai Hills, the Naga Hills, the Khasi Hills, the Garo Hills. Now, all these hills were inhabited by tribes which, which were, which, which, uh, who fought very, uh, how do I say, uh, who, who were the last to be colonized by the British. And also, you also had some tribal groups in, 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 in today's state of Orissa and Bihar, which were called the Santhals, and they are also tribals. So for a lot of these people, it was, the, it was abject poverty and also uh, in, 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 in some form, the, the, the enlistment was also forced because in, in Assam, there was, a, there was a system in place where the administration could call upon the tribal chiefs to supply labor. So in Assam, among the tribal areas, that were under the British administration, there was already an administrative and some kind of a tributary structure in place through which demands for coolies, for portering and road building, and even for expeditionary and punitive missions were regularly placed to the tribal chiefs by the administration. And when the calls for enlistment were given, you even had, uh, because in those days, the missionaries, the, 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 the Welsh missionaries were slowly making inroads uh, in the Northeast. So even you had missionary publications and government publications 
eulogizing the chance to go to France. I mean, they were trying to entice people to to join her because a lot, for a lot of these people, it was a, they, they had never their contacts with the outside world was so limited. So it would be the first trip outside. I mean, a lot of them had never worn shoes, trousers, had never seen a ship, a motor car, an aeroplane. So it was, it, it was maybe a, for a lot of them, it would have been frightening. So the subjugated tribes were, who were very poor had no other option but to enlist. As the offer was too good, a lifetime of exemption from payment of house tax. Now, let me speak about house tax. Now, when the British uh, colonized these uh, hills, they put in a system of getting tribute in the form of house tax. So every household had to pay an amount of two to three rupees per year. And also they had to work as porters whenever the chiefs gave the call that the British officers wanted labor. So they said that you will be exempt from the payment of house tax for your lifetime. And you would also not be asked to do forced labor, even though they were paid, but they were treated very badly. I mean, there are instances where uh, later on, I think we can just read out an excerpt from one of the accounts where he says that it's better to go because the exemption, the lifetime exemption of house tax is something which I am definitely going on. And also because I will never have to do forced labor. So for many, the adventure of a lifetime to see the world would also have been a reason for enlistment. Now, again here, because uh, we know that the first world war was and uh, was a period of sorrow and grief, a theater of sorrow and grief. But I think for the 9,000 tribal men who went from this area of my country, it was an epic journey of adventure and discovery into a hitherto unknown world. Now here, let me also bring in a little uh, something more because all these tribes had fought rudimentary wars with the British when the British tried to subjugate them or conquer them. Now, they fought with just spears and rudimentary firearms. So in the local constructs, in, in, in oral narratives, this event is, is often etched as fighting the Germans or going to the war or the journey to France. Now, these tribes had, as I said, fought violent wars with spears and rudimentary firearms before they were loosely brought into the administration of British India. Now, these areas had a very special form of administration because they were called the excluded areas uh, Indians were not allowed to travel into these areas. You needed some kind of permit. They were called the excluded areas. And uh, and uh, one of the reasons was because uh, a lot of these tribes, especially the Nagas and even the Lushais, were headhunting tribes. So for a lot of these men, because they, they would have connected, because just about their fathers or grandfathers might have fought very fierce battles with the British to keep their independence. And... For some of them, this was also a thought that they might be going to fight the Germans. Of course, this, uh, they were misinformed. But yes, the, this is how they joined up, the various reasons which I just uh, told you. So when did they reach um, France and, and Mesopotamia uh, when they were serving? The, 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 the labor corps that I have researched on, the, all of them went to the, uh, to the Western Front in France. But a lot of these labor corps from the United Provinces went to Mesopotamia. That's about 290,000 of them. So uh, in Mesopotamia, I mean, there was already some kind of a follower system where the soldiers would take some kind of helpers or helping hand to help them in, 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 in non-combat roles. 
So you already had a lot of the followers system way back in uh, 1916, I think, was, if I'm not mistaken, the year that a lot of them went, then more went in 1917. But uh, the, 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 the labor corps that I've researched on, the majority of them reached France in the summer of 1917, and they landed uh, in France by late uh, July and August. Now, again, here, uh, they were here till about a year because the contract was for a year. And when the year ended, so most of them started working by June, uh, by July, August. And uh, in 1918, I think that was somewhere in March, April, that the contract ended because most of them were recruited in April of 19, in March and April of 1917. So the one-year term of uh, employment ended in March uh, 1918, April 1918. So when uh, the British wanted to extend this because the war did not end until late 1919. So the British thought that we must have these men longer. So they wanted to, to extend their period of employment, but no one, I mean, it was very hard to convince them at the, at the end, the British had to let them uh, go because no one was really interested in, 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 in prolonging their uh, period of stay by another six months. I mean, interesting, uh, it, it, it's, it's quite funny. There's this uh, gentleman, uh, Sai Hinga, who has written a memoir, and uh, I have based a lot of my research on his memoir. Now, he writes that since he understood English, he was one of the head interpreters of a company of 500 men, because majority of the men did not speak English, so they needed an interpreter. So the British then, the British officers asked him, why don't you go and ask your men if they're, if they're willing to put in six more months of service? So Saihinga went about asking his men and uh, he was just asking one of the labor men who was just sleeping on a cot, I think. He said, uh, we have this offer of serving for another six months. Would you like to, to serve? So the men did not look at him and, and he just said, no, no, I'd just rather look at my chicken coo back home see my chickens, then see the French war. I, I'd rather get back home as soon as I can, you know. So what sort of work did, did the men that you've researched do in France? Now, since a lot of these men, as I told you, were from very simple backgrounds and they did not possess a lot many skills, but they did a lot of the loading and unloading of stores and transport initially. Now, later, some of the companies were put on battlefield clearance and salvage while other companies were detailed to road and railway construction as well as forestry work. Now, some of the hillmen were experts in making charcoal from the, the trench dugouts. So, and, and this skill found a lot of takers. Stone quarrying was another area of work which a lot of them did. Now, again here, uh, let me say that uh, when the terms of employment were given to these men, they said that uh, they, they, had, they had very clearly outlined that you know, you're not going to the war, you're going to do a lot of uh, menial work there and you'll not be serving uh, very close to the front line. But the fact is that a lot of Indian laborers were often, often used for more dangerous work, very close to the action, such as building fortifications and moving ammunitions. Now, as I said, there are uh, ample incidences of, uh, of how these men were frightened when they saw bombs dropping down uh, when even a, a lot of, I mean, they even experienced the, the gas attacks, you know, and uh, in the harsh, uh, again, now there's a very interesting, uh, because for a lot of these men, they had never seen snow. Winter was something which they never knew. So the harsh winter of 1917, 18, I mean, 
A lot of them were amazed, but a lot of them were also feeling so cold. So the British didn't know what to do. So they thought that why not give these Indian companies a mixture of opium with treacle every, I mean, twice every week. But they, but you know that some of these uh, labor labor corps had uh, missionaries who accompanied them. You had the you had the missionaries in the Lushai Labor Corps. You had missionaries accompanying the Khasi Labor Corps. So some of these missionaries uh, they complained that such a practice would affect the new believers who they felt might go back to their old ways. So there's a lot of uh, there's so much interest interesting anecdotes like there's uh, this person who was given this pair of shoes and he's see, he's he's just seeing shoes for the first time in his life he's never worn them so he doesn't know what to do and he hangs them on his neck you know so there's a lot of hilarious uh, funny incidents like that which when, when i first uh, read these accounts i mean it was i was alone in my room and i couldn't stop laughing you know because the, these these simple things which we take for granted i mean for them it was so new i mean everything was just a new world so what impact did they have on the war effort? The Labour Corps was the agency that did not fight, but they had they did such a lot of support work. They supported all sorts of construction work, supplied labour to an army that was grappling with manpower issues. Now, here again, even the French, they recruited Labour Corps from their uh, colonies in, Indo- uh, in, in uh, Indochina, today's Vietnam and uh, Vietnam and Thailand, I think some of them, and, and even Cambodia. Now, had it not been for the Labour Corps, not just Indians, but the rest, I think the war would have been prolonged. The services rendered by these men were by no means ordinary. It is just that they did not bear arms, but they, they too bore the brunt of the war. Now, Lord Amthill, who was the Indian Labour Corps advisor in France, initially he was not very impressed by the Indians. I mean, he had a lot to say. I mean, there are a lot of his uh, his his letters to the different uh, commanders complaining about the Indian men. But in January 1918, when he had seen the Labour Corps work for more than uh, six, seven months, he changed his opinion. And he argued in a letter, and he said, the physical toll on the Indian Labour Corps was so great that they should be regarded as soldiers. So this is something, you see, someone who was not impressed, and later he changed his whole opinion. So I think... Lord Amtill's remark speaks volumes about how the contributions of these labourers should be seen and regarded. Now, I think you've already touched on this, but how did um, the Indian labourers regard their experience on the Western Front once they've returned home? Now, as I said, yes, uh, since uh, within the Indian Labour Corps, we are talking more about the Labour Corps from my region, which is the northeast India. Now, there are these three memoirs. I've come across three memoirs by the men of the Labour Corps from the Northeast India. Now, I think it's, let me just quickly run you through that. You had the Lushai Labour Corps of four companies. You had the Khasi Labour Corps of four companies. You had the Garo Labour Corps of four companies. You had the Manipur Labour Corps of four companies and the Naga Labour Corps of four companies. And you even had about five companies of hillmen from today's Chin Hills in, in Myanmar, which is colonial Burma. So these were all tribal men. And also, you, as I told you earlier, you had these uh, uh, tribals from central India, the Oran, the Santhals in today's uh, Bihar and Orissa. So all of these uh, could be clumped together as one. I mean, uh, and again, coming back to my, uh, to my area of research, which is the Labour Corps from India. Now, there are three m- memoirs, two in the Mizo language, which is Lushai, and one in the Tankul dialect, which is the Tankul language, 
were a part of the Manipur Labour Corps. Now, these accounts offer a fascinating glimpse of the experience and, it, and their, their lives are documented because other than these uh, memoirs and a few letters which are there in different archives across uh, different cities in the Northeast, I mean, in Aizol, yes, we do have, uh, I have, in fact, I have a personal collection of those letters which I managed to get and they, they form, I mean, they form a lot of uh, basis for my work. Now, coming back uh, to the, uh, the kind of experiences that they had. Now, in the, uh, now in the larger context, I think what I will now say is that uh, not talking about individual lives, but as a community, what happened, I mean, what were their experiences and what did they get out of it? Now, the year 1917 will always be remembered in the history of these tribes as a very seminal year, a year when so many of them for the first time acted on the world, world stage. This singular event of going to France reinforced their idea of a separate identity, infused in them a sense of pride and bolstered their self-esteem. Of all things, modern civilization, education and Christianity impressed them the most. When these men came back and the things they saw and experienced, it set the ball of development rolling within, within their respective tribes. Now, even more important is that the process of political consciousness began to dawn and they started slowly organizing themselves. Because when we look at the period of 1930s, 40s, and in 1947, even by 1947, you didn't have these tribal men coming out in India's freedom struggle because they were always the excluded zone. And they did not, they had, they had in fact, they had nothing in common with the, with, the, with the majority Indians, if I may say so, even though today all these tribes are a part of the Union of India. Now, as I was just saying that uh, the process of political consciousness began to dawn amongst them. So men of the Naga Labour Corps, when they came back, uh, they set up the Naga Club in, I think, 1919. And the Naga Club in 1929, they met the Simon Commission to demand that their rights be safeguarded and they be continued to administered, to be administered separately. And uh, the, uh, the Nagas are one tribal group that still does not accept themselves as Indians. They they have been fighting a, a, a war, if I may use that word, or uh, even though there is a ceasefire, I mean the Nagas have been fighting to be not to be not to be a part of the Indian, rather to 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 have more self determination for them. And also in 1933, the Lushai intelligentsia, who were a part, I think most of a lot of them would be a part of the Lushai Labour Corps, they demanded that the excluded tag be removed. And they be given representation in the provincial legislature of Assam because Assam was the, the 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 province where all of them had representation. And even in 1923, the native Khasi states, which uh, came together and they formed the Khasi Darbar to foster unity and pave way ahead in, in the changing times for Khasis. Now today, the Mizos, the Khasis, and the Nagas, it's very interesting that they rank higher in literacy than the national Indian average. On various developmental parameters such as health, education, and social security, they, they top the list. So these men really chartered a new world for the future generations, today's generations. So the tribes experienced during the First World War expanded their horizon, and with that, the perceptible changes in the world value and 
the the worldview and value system, if I may. And what was the level of casualties amongst the Labour Corps? How many actually um, died as a result of either combat deaths or from things like the uh, flu pandemic? Uh, yes, I think uh, since we were talking about the Western Front and the Mesopotamia campaign, now I think in the Mesopotamia in the Mesopotamia campaign, a lot died, but. Uh, the War Office has a figure, and that figure is uh, it's, it's about 17,347 Labour Corps uh, dead, they say, out of these many people. But I think this certainly is an underestimation, because a lot, uh, even for the Indian soldiers, a lot of them were illiterate, and these Labour Corps were one rung below the soldiers, and uh, I think information about them would have not been kept very well. So... I think uh, certainly the numbers would would definitely be more than 70,347, which are the war office figures. And when they were close to the front lines, many fell to medium and long range enemy artillery. And even sometimes they they, they died during gas attacks. Now, for a lot of uh, many of them also died on the long sea route journey from uh, from India to France because it took them almost two months. And for most of these men, it was the first trip so long. For many of them, they got seasick. They had diarrhea, dysentery on the ships. And uh, again, because in, in, uh, when some of them were given a ship burial, I mean, some of, a lot of them were so disturbed that they said, this is what's going to happen to us. But again, uh, those deaths were not many. Were not many. Of course, uh, a lot of them died. But yes, uh, most of the, 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 the terrible Spanish flu pandemic and pneumonia took a heavy toll on these men. I mean, I have come across records of, uh, of men from the Labour Corps where uh, the death is said uh, flu pandemic or pneumonia. So because when I was going through these records from the, the Commonwealth War Graves Commission, because uh, the, the website has the list killed in battle, casualty or illness and something like that. So I, I found a lot of them, yes, died because of the flu pandemic and pneumonia. And how is the Labour Corps or the experience of the Labour Corps remembered today, especially in, in your area of the country? It's very interesting to know that in my area of the country, two, three years after they came back, the British administration set up these memorials. One in Isol to the uh, Lushai Labour Corps, 71 men died. And in Shillong, which was the capital of Sam, to the men of the Khasi Labour Corps, there was a memorial. In, in, in Tura, which is the, the, the headquarters of the Garos, or let me say the biggest inhabitation of the Garos, of the Garo Labour Corps, uh, there is even a memorial. So you have these three memorials. And I think among all these tribes, the most poignant form of remembrance is done by the Garos, because even till today, they celebrate the year the Labour Corps, I mean, the date the Labour Corps returned from France, 16 July 1918. So 16 July, 16 July is celebrated by the Garos, who who, uh, who are inhabitants of the state of Meghalaya today. Every year they still remember their their men and 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 celebrate it as Remembrance Day. Now again, uh, the 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 Manipur Labour Corps did not have a memorial, but I think it's coming up. And even the Naga Labour Corps, of which uh, the 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 Nagaland state is there today. In 2016, the government erected a memorial to, to their men. And even, even the, the, the chief minister of, of uh, Nagaland in, I think, 2016 or 15, visited some of these graves, the graves of the Naga laborers who died in France and were buried there. So, and uh, yes, 
And uh, in, in tribal culture, music plays a very important part. I think before we just go ahead further, I think I, I, before I forget, I must bring this part. So you had a lot of these folk songs, which, are, which were composed by the tribal communities, either as a song of lament, a song of celebration when they came back. So there's a, very, uh, there's a song in, 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 in Lushai, which is uh, the Mizo language today, called the German Raal Rune. And this song is even sung today. And like that, you, 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 you have the Kasi Labour Corps song. And even among the Nagas, you had a, I have come across a couple of Labour Corps songs. Of course, these are not... Uh, the Lushai Labour Corps song is very well known. It is sung by the, the younger generations even today. But for the other tribes, they are slowly forgetting the... the I mean, a lot of them, I think, would not know about their, their, the, the Labour Corps songs, you know. And finally, Pratap, where can people learn more about your research? Yes, uh, this is, I mean, I, I, I shy of calling myself a researcher. I'm just an, an amateur historian who hardly has a background in, 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 uh, in doing history stuff. So uh, it was out of sheer interest that uh, I, I started digging and prodding. And I, in 2015, I wrote an article called The uh, Northeast India and the First World War. It is there on the web, uh, on the Center for Hidden Histories website, and on the magazine where it was first published, Eastern Panorama. If you uh, if you Google it, you'll find it. And this article has also been translated into French by uh, Paul Trevier, and is a part in his book, uh, which is if I, I I don't think I can pronounce French that well. The book is Le Jardin Oak Twelve Thousand Pierre, which was published in two thousand seventeen. And there is even an English translation of the Lusha Labour Corps song that I just talked about, which was carried in a resource pack, the unremembered World War I army of workers, the Indian story brought out by Big Ideas Community Interest Group, United Kingdom. So, uh, and, as I, and I'm, I'm again doing a lot of, uh, because I don't have a lot of time, so whenever I get time, I try to find out these uh, archival letters and uh, and also go back to the memoirs because the letters are an area i think where you where uh, new new perspectives of of the men can really come forth i think pratap thank you very much for your time thank you tom that certainly was a very interesting session as i said and thank you very much for having me on your show You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>